Welcome to episode 44 of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. In this episode, our Princeton Podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, welcomed David Nirenberg, the director of the Institute for Advanced Study, serving as a model for protecting and promoting independent inquiry and the importance of academic freedom worldwide. David Nirenberg described the Institute's illustrious history and its mission of assembling groups of scientists and scholars from around the world who devote themselves to pushing beyond the present limits of human knowledge. Mark and David also discussed the Institute's sense of community here in Princeton, as well as the interest in the Institute prompted by the recent film Oppenheimer. This episode is an enlightening look into another of Princeton's significant institutions. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, David Nirenberg, for episode 44 of the Princeton Podcast. David, thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. We appreciate that. David, could you briefly explain what the mission of the Institute for Advanced Study is? Sure, the mission is really simple. The mission is discovery. Uh, The place was established in 1930, and its goal was just to be a place where anyone, anywhere in the world, I think in 1930 they said regardless of sex, religion, or nationality, or race, could actualize their potential for discovery. And we've been that ever since. We've been bringing people from five, roughly 40, 50 countries a year to the Institute to actualize their capacity for discovery. I guess there's a second mission, which is to make sure that that discovery reaches the communities that can benefit from it. That might be policy, it might be education, it might be really any, any, any community that can benefit from the kind of discovery that the Institute is generating. That's great. Thank you. So could you touch on some of your previous roles and how they prepared you for your current position at the Institute? And what, what made you a desirable candidate for the director's position there? Well, Mayor, looking at your own CV, I, I could <laughs> throw that question back at you. You've done so many interesting things. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that just about everything prepares you for these kinds of roles. Yes. I, I dropped out of high school and worked at McDonald's full time. That prepared me for this kind of role. Mm-hmm. I worked at Morgan Stanley. I think you... It was you, like Goldman. You, yeah. yeah. I, I worked at Morgan Stanley for a short time. That prepared me for this kind of role. And I I think every aspect of our lives, for example, I grew up bilingual and immigrant family, always translating between cultures. I think that prepares me for a kind of role where that's really my job, to translate between the different faculties, uh, professors and the world, between philanthropy, educational establishment, politicians, and the kind of thing we're doing. I think it's all about translation. And the more of the world we know, the more languages we know, the more people we know, the more we've been in the world, the better we're going to be at it. So I'd say every role. But there have been some roles that have really helped me understand how to lead a larger organization. I, I guess my role as dean of social science at the University of Chicago and then as executive vice provost there, really trying to manage all of the arts and sciences, computing, libraries, all of the kinds of resources it takes to make discovery and education possible. Those have, those have been really helpful. That's a great answer. And, and, I, and I totally agree that I think every experience we have in life is something that we a, should learn from and that we can use later on. So very impressive. Thank you. Well, let me ask you back. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I want to have a podcast where I get to interview you. That, that's it's, next. it's a deal. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think from what I've read, your background departs from that of past directors of the Institute, at least past directors for many decades. 
So how does that going to impact the Institute? You're, you're having a very different background than, than recent directors. That's a good question. It's true that most recent directors of the Institute have been really specialized in physics, mathematical physics, yeah. or mathematics. And I think those are very important areas at the Institute. They always have and they always will be. And so have the other schools of the Institute been important, historical studies, social science. I may be the first director in, in recent memory who really comes from the, the, more, the less mathematical and more interpretive side, the more mm -hmm. humanistic side. But I think we're at a moment in which that's actually really helpful. We're in a moment in which translating between expertise, between science and society, for example, is as difficult as it's ever been and as important as it's ever been. We're in a moment where being able to understand problems at their largest. So take, for example, the problem of machine learning or artificial intelligence and how, as we say nowadays, we can align technology with humanity. Well, that's, on the one hand, that's a scientific problem, a technological problem, but on the other hand, it's a humanity problem. We have to understand humanity in order to understand what alignment would be and how we might achieve it. So addressing the kinds of issues we're facing now, I'll just harp on AI because everyone's thinking about AI, it really requires the ability to move across many domains of knowledge. And that's, that's the one thing I've, I've always been working on, working across domains. So, you know, I started working on Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, not just one of them, but all three, and how they related to each other, how they mm -hmm. translated each other. Then I've worked on how humans have used number to think with, how the, the history of mathematics and the history of human knowledge have intersected. Now I'm working on how our knowledge of artificial selection, of how humans have learned to select plants and animals to do things in the world they want to do, like create food or create animals they can work with, have shaped how humans think about for example, race or religion. So bringing different parts of problems together, I think that's what's really important nowadays. And I think that the background of, let me just say, a really broadly educated humanist, someone who's worked in mathematics, who's worked in science, who's worked also in, say, finance or law or any of the other languages that structure humanity, that, that's a role that's really important today. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what about your educational journey? Uh, can you share a little bit on that? Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think we would all agree, probably everyone listening to this podcast would agree that our educational journey is, is everything. It has so much to do with, with the lives we can lead and yeah. the capacities we can cultivate. And I can just say, thank God for public education. I, I, my family moved around a lot until I was about seven, like I say, immigrants to the United States. And then Gilliland Public High School, the Flying Dutchman, mm. that, that was really, I think, the the basis for everything. So I, I'm one of those people, and there's many people in the world who, would, who are like me, who owe almost all of our opportunities to education. And I can't say enough about the education offered at Princeton. The fact that Princeton has such strong public education, as well as a, a large variety of very good private education, right. means that for us to recruit anyone from anywhere in the world, no matter what their economic circumstances, to come to the Institute for a year or longer to, to discover what they're capable of discovering becomes that much easier because they know, we know, that their children, again, no matter where in the world they come from, what languages they speak, what they're interested in, they're going to get a great education here in Princeton. And so I just say um, my educational path, it led through public school, then it went to Yale and Princeton, and those were all great things, but it all started with the kinds of things that that, that you're making possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a great point that education is key to so much in, in everyone's life and their future. And something that we should all remember is that when we need to support education, there's a really good reason as to why we should. Amen. Thank you. So what about, I mean, you've, you've, you've written a lot of books. So do you want to share some of the topics that you've written on? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess because I grew up kind of in between, in between languages and, and cultures and religions, I've always really been interested in that, how, how, how these things mix. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's also the, the American story, right? Right. So I really started working on, on religions, on why, uh, how Islam, Judaism, and Christianity interacted with each other, thought about each other, took shape kind of as neighbors of each other. Uh, and that was my dissertation here at Princeton. Uh, 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 I have very fond memories of this place from, <laughs> from my youth. Uh, and I, I've always, I continue to be really interested in what the history of Muslim-Jewish Christian relations can tell us about uh, not only the past, but also our possibilities of interaction in the present and the future. So I've written a lot on that. I, I, my first book was, was called Communities of Violence, and I think the name alone is meant to kind of give you a sense of both the community's aspect and the tension. And then I've worked on books like Neighboring Faiths, which is also meant to kind of give you a sense of how these religions both take shape next to each other, interacting with each other, and how they also can harbor very negative feelings about each other. And I, I think I've worked a lot on particular forms of religious prejudice. I wrote a book called Anti-Judaism, which was really about the long history from ancient mm-hmm. Egypt to the present of thinking about Jews. And those kinds of books have also helped me move into areas like helping Facebook think about hate speech. Mm-hmm. or uh, you know, these, are, these are things that have direct application in some ways to our present situation, to our detention between parts of the Islamic world and the West, to recurrent uh, forms of religious prejudice, religious discrimination, racial prejudice, racial discrimination. I've been working on that as well. It's pretty amazing. I, I love just listening to you here. This is very impressive, as, as to be expected. Well, I'll tell you, every professor loves to talk. So if you <laughs> ask me a question, you're just going <laughs> to... <laughs> I appreciate that. So can you explain to us that, you know, at the Institute, you have permanent faculty, and then you have visiting researchers and scholars that come in each year. So how, how does all that work? And how do you be, how, how are you, you know, what, why am I permanent versus why am I a visiting person? How, how does that all really, come about? That's a really interesting question. And I, I, I guess we're pretty unique in our combination. So let me just explain it. Unlike a university, which has usually many professors, we have ranging between 25 and 30 professors, depending on how full are, just a handful. And they're all at the very tops of their field. They're very eminent people, but there's only 25 of them, 28 of them, 30 of them. So four in the social sciences, eight in historical studies, in physics and mathematics. Right? Um, and then we have 10 times that number, uh, as much as 300 members each year. And those are people who come from all over the world and they come from all over the world to work on a problem. Sometimes it's their own problem. It's just what they're interested in doing. They have total freedom to pursue what they want to do. Sometimes it's a collective problem. So the School of Mathematics might say, this is the most important mathematical question in order to make progress in this branch of mathematics. And so what we're going to do is we're going to bring 30 people from all over the world, the best people on this subject, and we're going to think together for a year and make progress on this one problem. 
School of Social Science has themes. They bring together a bunch of people to work, say, on the politics of climate change. Or this year, it's on platform. uh, so on, on a major problem, and they work together. And what that means is that we can kind of reassemble every year around the question, the issue where we think discovery is most fruitful, most pregnant, most necessary in our given discipline. It's very different from a university where you have all of this faculty that are there basically permanently, and then you have students who are, who are not yet researchers, right? They're not yet fully formed or, or researchers. and and you have a harder time reassembling around a question in a regular and dynamic way. So I think our structure gives us a big advantage in thinking about emerging problems at the foundations of knowledge. Thank you. That's, that's great to actually have an idea of what, how you do, how you, but, how you do all this. But it also means that every year we're bringing like 300 people yeah. from all over the world <laughs> to Princeton. Yeah. And that's part of making, Princeton is, Princeton is an amazing town because it's small. And yet it has real critical mass yeah. intellectually and in, in many ways. And we contribute to that by really turning the Princeton into something of a cosmopole, right? We bring, as I say, uh, roughly 300 members a year from, from 45 different countries on average a year to this, to this small town. And we just, we're, in that way, we've been contributing really since Einstein and von Neumann and Panofsky and all that initial generation came from Europe to the Institute. And, and from China to the Institute, we've been contributing to making this town, may I say, punch far above its weight in mm-hmm. terms of its intellectual place in the world. Yeah. No, I'd have to agree with that. So let me ask you, I mean, I, I think everybody recently, due to the Oppenheimer movie, has maybe a greater awareness of the Institute. So has the movie had any effect on the Institute, or have you seen gen- more interest? You know, I don't know how that might show itself, but... Yeah. Well, it shows itself in many ways. You bet the movies had some, some consequences. One consequence is that cars tend to like enter my driveway, which is a circle, and race through it with their cameras held up to take a picture of the house that they saw in the movie. Luckily, no one's killed anybody yet. You know? <laughs> I, I think for a period, there were about 40 selfies a day at my back gate, which wow. is a nice scene in the movie. You might remember it where Oppenheimer and Kitty are standing at the gate looking right. out and yeah. thinking about their future. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to do selfies at that gate. Uh, but more importantly, I, I think the movie has reminded the world, and certainly us, e- even us at the Institute itself, of a role that the Institute has played in the history of, of technology and the history of, of, of the world. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what I mean. Um, in 1947, Life magazine published a cover story on Heimer becoming director of the Institute. And it had a picture of Fold Hall, which, as you know, is our signature building. And it called it the most important building on Earth. Well, why was it the most important building on Earth in 1947? I mean, apart from the physics and the historical studies and all the research that was being done, it was also important because it was a place where all, uh, many of the leading thinkers of the age not only physicists like Oppenheimer and Einstein, but also historians and diplomats like George Kennan, philosophers, etc., like Chernus, were thinking about how can our world deal with this new tool that humanity has, the atom? Now, that was, the, that was a pressing question, right? This was a technology that promised to transform the world in many ways and could also threaten to destroy it. And the Institute was the place where thinking about this 
the, Atom the International Atomic Energy Agency, all of these kinds of things took form or birthed by the conversations at the Institute between Oppenheimer and many others about how to do this. And you get a hint of that in the movie. Mm -hmm. And what the movie's done is just reminded us of the importance of that place. We've always played a role in those kinds of discussions. Today we're playing a role in those kinds of discussions around AI. I think of our faculty member, Alondra Nelson, who returned to us from the White House where she had written the AI Bill of Rights and has been convening people from policy, people from research and science, people from industry to really think about what AI governance could and should look like globally. So the Oppenheimer movie kind of reminded us of uh, a really important role, of the ongoing importance of that role, and it just reminded us that at the Institute we have an obligation and an opportunity to continue fulfilling that role. Yeah. So whether or not we've seen the movie, and maybe you've partially answered this, but what should we know about Oppenheimer or even Einstein's history with the Institute? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and I guess I did touch on it in, inadvertently <laughs> in, in my previous... It's okay this time. <laughs> but I, I don't think I said what I, I really feel is so distinctive about Oppenheimer's role. And I think this is something that we should know, and I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, actually, right before the movie came out, kind of... Mm -hmm. uh, and that is that Oppenheimer... He was, a, you know, he was a physicist. He was a great physicist. Not as great as some of the others who came, perhaps, through the Institute's doors in terms of his foundational contributions to the discipline, but very important. But what, he, what fewer people know is that Oppenheimer was convinced that the challenges of atomic energy, both in terms of its, its, its peaceful uses and in terms of its potential for destruction, couldn't be met through technology alone. He repeatedly insisted, and, and this, this cost him, right? And one of the reasons mm -hmm. he, he, he lost his security clearance, as you, as you know from the movie, is because he insisted that physicists were not the best or only guardians of what the future of the atom should be or could be. That on the contrary, these kinds of problems, these technological problems that, that, that the bomb posed to society, to humanity, could only be answered at the human level. That is, at the level of, say, politics, at the level of sociology, at the level of ethics, at the level of philosophy. And he had these big arguments with, not so much with Einstein, but with von Neumann, uh, John von Neumann, who was really one of the greatest, most creative minds in, in the world of mathematics and physics and, and biology and many other areas. And von Neumann invented something called game theory. Mm -hmm. And he invented game theory as a way of basically what he thought, saw as challenging, solving the challenges of the atomic bomb. With game theory, you could predict when you should attack, when you shouldn't attack, who would win the war, etc. And, and uh, sorry, Oppenheimer was sure. In fact, he said it shortly after von Neumann's death. He, said, he asked, what are we supposed to make of a society that can only contemplate the possibility of its technology destroying all of the Earth in game theoretical terms? And rather than the ethical terms that humanity has always deployed to think about these kinds of problems. So I guess what I'm trying to say that's important about Oppenheimer is he understood that in order to solve, or solve is maybe the wrong question, wrestle with, approach, understand any of the major problems we face, science is not enough. Science is absolutely necessary. Remember, Oppenheimer funded von Neumann's computer, right? Science, absolutely necessary, but philosophy, ethics, humanities, history, social sciences, all also necessary. And Oppenheimer, he built an institute 
that could bring all those together. He even brought T.S. Eliot, the poet, hmm. to the Institute because he thought that that was also an important way of approaching the kinds of questions that we had to approach. Well, thank you. So how does the Institute understand its place in the community? You know, that's a question that's very dear to me because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I think for many in the community, the Institute has succeeded so well in becoming part of the community that they don't even notice it. Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. When you drive into Princeton along Quaker Bridge Road, Quaker Road? Quaker. Mercer Street. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Quick by the both, both. Oh, right. The, the Quaker Road comes right, yep, and sure. then into Mercer Street. Yep. What you see is uh, a whole kind of landscape that reminds you of what Princeton might have felt like uh, at the moment of the American Revolution. Sure. Well, that that, that that's part of your your feeling about Princeton, or when you when you feel like during when you feel like you really need to take your dogs for a walk. I think a lot of people in Princeton know that the Institute Woods are a nice place to go. A lot of people go there. A lot of people go there. And so we've really created, we've opened our 800 acres of campus in an in a almost invisible way to the community and, and turned ourselves into a, a space for the community. And by community, I don't mean just the human community. Our woods are permanently preserved and fields, and those are an essential flyway for like 200 species of birds. I can't tell you how many kinds of frogs. In other words... <laughs> I think of Princeton as a space that has, since its origins, really been focused on, in some ways, opening its spaces to the community. That's especially true of the battlefield. I don't think the battlefield would look anything like what it looks like if it weren't for the gifts of land that the Institute made to the state and then and to the trust, to the monument that the Institute gave to the battlefield. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, in many in many of the things that we experience as Princetonians, the Institute's already there. But I would, add, I would add more. I'd just say that the Institute isn't just there to nurture the intellects and the potential for discovery of people from all over the world. It is. But it's also there to nurture the intellects and the potential for discovery of Princetonians. And we have a lot of events. We're doing a better job at advertising than now. <laughs> a lot of events, a lot of thinkers, intellectuals, performers, politicians, policymakers, representatives of different industries who come through the Institute. And we try to make these available as a space where everyone in Princeton who wants to can participate in the kind of conversation, deep conversation about difficult problems that the Institute exists to catalyze and sustain. Yeah, I find it interesting. I think so many people who enjoy whether it's walking through the woods or whatever, but just kind of, or even the, the turkey trot that happens every year goes through Institute land. So, uh, but I think if you live here, you almost take the Institute for granted in that it's always been here and I've always had access to the property at least. Well, that's true. And it's really interesting. I, you know, we live in an age of self-promotion, but the Institute has never really done that. Right. We don't put signs on our property. You don't know when you walk into the Institute woods or into the fields around the Institute that these are no. Institute things. You don't know that the Einstein House 
Well, there's not even a sign outside yeah. of Einstein House. It doesn't right. say this was Einstein's house. It doesn't say <laughs> this house uh, belongs to the Institute because for advanced study where Einstein was a professor for all of his later life. It doesn't say anything, right? So I think that that's on us finding better ways to communicate our role and our and our openness to the community and and you know we're definitely working on that i welcome i welcome your ideas yeah so i guess related to that so how does a resident become aware of these like different opportunities at the at the institute to come here a discussion a lecture or well we there's there's lots of different ways depending on the kind of involvement you want for example, we have a program called Friends of the Institute for Advanced Study where you can actually become a friend and gain access to many of the facilities and many of the events that are, even some events that are closed to the, to the public. But we also are, have begun trying to advertise more extensively places like Town Topics, of course, and we have uh, the kinds of things we do. So we had an, um, a master class with Joyce Di Donato, uh, the opera singer, or we brought... Dan Weiss, the president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, to talk about the future of museums. Or, you know, we, we, we're constantly bringing, in, in a few weeks, we'll be bringing Catherine Fleming, who's the president of the Getty Trust and the former provost at NYU, and Dame Louise Richardson, who was, who's the president of the Carnegie Foundation and former head of Oxford University, to talk about the past, present, and future of higher education and foundations. So we're, we're having, we, we're constantly doing these kinds of things and we're doing, trying to do a better job of letting you all know <laughs> about them. And, and again, the website is, is also a source of information about everything from our stargazing events to our geocaching in the woods events. To, we, we, try, we try to put together things for a vast diversity of ages and, uh, and interests. David, thank you very much for being here today. And thanks for everything that you've shared about the Institute and about yourself. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's a great pleasure, and I want to thank you and, and your colleagues in, in, in the local government for, for the dedication, for the community engagement, for all of the work you do that makes this place such a fantastic place for the Institute to have thrived in for almost a century. Yeah. Princeton is a special place, and we're all lucky to be here. Thank you. You said it. Thanks. The Princeton Podcast is produced by the podcast production team at HG Media providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. Visit our website at princetonpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts.